0: Good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? Excellent. My name is Carl. I am one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I am excited to be here with you this morning. I'm eager to look at this text with you. But as I typically do, I'm going to share with you a story about my childhood first. So here we go. When I was a kid, I grew up in West Texas in Abilene. And uh, we lived in a neighborhood where there was like, I don't know, about as many kids as we have in preschool at this church. 450,000 kids in this little area. And so we always got together, hung out, played, rode bikes, made ramps, just had a great time, had lots of fun. Most of the kids in the neighborhood got along. Liked each other, generally friendly, enjoyed hanging out. You of course had your hierarchy. You looked for your bestie first. If you couldn't find him, you'd find somebody else to hang out with. There was this one particular kid who only lived a couple doors down from us, who was not really the nicest kid. He was kind of selfish. It's kind of mean. It's kind of rude. And uh, generally, people weren't friends with him. But most of us, especially the younger boys, maintained some level of a relationship with this guy because he contained, he owned, he possessed one of the greatest currencies available in 1980s kiddom a basketball goal. He had a basketball goal in his driveway. So you had to be friends with this guy if you wanted to shoot hoops. I also personally maintained a relationship with him because he had stolen a whole bunch of my Star Wars figures and I hoped to get them back someday. I did not. But on this one particular day, my hierarchy of friendship had been exhausted and my only choice was to go a couple doors down and see if this guy wants to shoot hoops. And he did. So we're outside, we're shooting a game of horse, right? We're playing, having a good time. After about 10, 15 minutes of this, my younger sister, Sarah begins to walk from our yard over to this yard. Now, I need to stop the story, and I need to make a statement. Here's the statement. I love my little sister, Sarah, okay? I'm gonna make that statement for a couple of reasons. One, it it needs to be said. Two, it bears a, a, a bit of weight on the story I'm about to share. So, we're playing the game. Here comes my sister. She begins to say things like, can I have a turn? Can I take a shot? Can I play you guys? And my friend, I'm sorry, my friend begins to say things to her like, no kid, get out of here. It's not for you, it's just us. Get out of here, nobody wants you here. Go on. And she kind of dodges those things and remains, but she no longer really tries to play, but she stays. And my friend realizes, man, my words are not getting the job done. I really need to turn up the heat. And so he walks over and shoves my sister down, both hands. Both shoulders, knocks her down. As she falls, one of the bolts coming out the back end of that, uh, that, uh, that basketball goal cuts her. So she's on the ground, bleeding, crying, having been insulted in front of her brother. She gets up in tears and runs home, of course, to seek the comfort of mom. And what did her brother do? Exactly what you think I would do. I grab this kid by the shirt, I throw him on the ground, and just start wailing on him. That's not true, I didn't do that. (laughs) What I did do was I threw the ball down and said, hey buddy, nobody talks to my sister that way, you can't treat her that way, play by yourself from now on. I didn't do that either. (laughs) After watching my sister get humiliated and physically injured and leave bleeding and in tears, I said something like this. I think I have H-O-R, you have H-O, right? I think it's my shot, it's my shot. I said something like that. Now, did I get in trouble for that? Absolutely I did. My dad read me the riot act and explained to me the expectations for an older brother to take care of and protect his younger sister. I learned something that day, but I want to go back to the statement that I made. What did I say? I love my little sister Sarah, right? If you knew nothing else about our relationship except me making that statement and then this story of the basketball goal, you would say, I don't, I don't think you understand what loving someone means, Carl. I don't think you actually love your sister. I don't think that statement you made is true because your actions don't line up. And the reason I share that story is that's one of the things that John is trying to help us to see in our text today. So let's, uh, let's pray and then we will get into it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are near to us, uh, that we uh, have your word that we can study so that we might know you better and therefore love you more and thereby worship you more rightly. So we ask you to be near to us this morning as we study these two verses in this letter that you will help us, help us by your spirit to understand what is being said and what we need to learn and how we can love you more as a result. Be near to us. I pray that you'll help me to be faithful uh, as I expound uh, what this Uh, word means today. Help me to be faithful. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. So what is John talking about in our passage today? Surprise, surprise, loving one another, right? This has been something that's been going on over and over and over as we've studied 1 John. It feels like that's all we've been preaching on for weeks. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The main one is John's writing style, so he's not like Paul. Paul writes a letter and he says, "Here's this thing I want you to know. Let me explain it to you. Move on. Here's this new thing I want you to know. Let me explain it to you. Good. Now I'm going to go back and review these things. Did you understand? Good. Here's this new point. I'm going to explain it to you. That's the way he writes. But John writes in a different way. John writes in a way that's been described as being symphonic. Right. So if Paul's writing is like an 80s rock ballad or something like that, verse one information, verse two information, chorus, then we tie the story together. See ya. John writes like a symphony. We've got the orchestra, and this musical theme gets introduced, and it starts in the first violins, and it moves its way into the violas, and the cellos, and the string basses, then the English horn, then the French horns, and it always sounds better when the French horns play it. (laughs) And it moves all around, and then a second musical theme gets introduced, but the first one didn't go away. They just start to move together. And then a third musical theme gets introduced and they, they start moving around and they just keep coming back around and back around and that's what's happening. This idea of loving one another is this cyclical theme that just keeps coming back and John keeps giving us more and more nuance as to what it means. So let's look at our first verse, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what does this verse mean? It's pretty simple. It's not really uh, tricky. It means you cannot love God without loving others. You cannot love God without loving others. That's what John's telling us. But let's look at a little more detail as to why that is. Let's look at the first half of this verse. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So let's consider these words, love and hate. So what is love? Don't think of an SNL skit. Don't think of Night at the Roxbury when I say, what is love? I guess I'm bobbing their head over here. But instead, let's focus on the text. What does God mean? What does God mean by love? I think it's helpful for us to think about things that love is not. Love is not just saying, I love you. That's not love. We just saw that in my story with my sister. I could say that I love my sister, but my behavior doesn't bear it out. Love is not affirming things that are false. Truth is loving. Falsehood is not. Even if it makes someone feel better, we must hold to truth and we must hold to the genuine sufficiency of Scripture. So it's not loving for me to affirm that a man is a woman just because he says he is. It's not loving for a parent to withhold discipline from their kids just because it makes them feel better. It's not loving to tell someone it's okay to commit adultery just because they have a really mean spouse. It's not loving for me to reject something that you tell me just because I don't like the way you said it. It's not loving to reject the biblical counsel of others just because they aren't the same gender as you or the same age as you or the same race as you or the same life stage as you or the same marital status as you. These things are not loving because they don't hold to what's true. So that's what it's not. But what is it? And we've done this before. For the last several weeks, we've talked about what love is, but I think it bears repeating. Love is doing what's best for someone else, even if it costs you. Love is sacrificing for someone else while still having a warm regard and concern for that person. Love contains these elements of sacrifice and putting others ahead of yourself, right? It is this biblical idea of love. So then hate, in our little context that we're dealing with now, is what John means when he says hates his brother. He's meaning the opposite of this, not doing what's best for someone, especially if it costs you. It's being indifferent. It's being uncaring. It's withholding the truth instead of holding to it. So let's read this first half of this verse again. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John is setting up this kind of logical argument that somehow it must be impossible to actually love God without loving others. If you say this thing, but then you do this thing, this demonstrates this thing not to be false like we saw with my sister. This would be like you saying to me, Carl, man, I can run a marathon, no problem. I'm like, man, that's cool, I would like to see that. And you you sign up for a marathon and you collapse from heat exhaustion at like mile four. I don't think you understand what running a marathon no problem is, right? Or saying to me, Carl, you know what I love really doing? Man, I love to write. Writing is this great passion. I love taking my thoughts and putting them into words and writing. Oh, it's just, it gives me such joy. I'm like, that's amazing. Can I read something you've written? Well, I mean, I haven't really written any poems or blogs or articles or novels. or I I haven't, I haven't really written anything. I don't think you understand what loving writing means, right? Or you might say, Carl, you know what I really love? I really love those Star Wars movies. I say, man, me too. Who's your favorite character? And you say, Jar Jar Binks. And I say, I don't think you understand. (laughs) Now listen, that's two Star Wars references today already. One from Jeff, one from me. There may or may not be another one coming. I need you to know we do not spend our days off going to Comic-Con or dress like stormtroopers at our desks or anything like that. We just like good movies. So let's consider a few reasons why this might be the case. Why might it actually be the case that to not love others is somehow to not love God? Because on the surface, that doesn't actually seem to make sense. That's like saying, if you love your dad, then you'll love your second cousins. I don't know. No, if I love my dad, I'll just show my dad that I love him. Why is showing somebody else that I love them a demonstration of love for them? How does that make sense? Well, there's several good reasons, and I'm going to walk this through. We've got four of them for you right? The first one, if you love someone, then you learn to love what they love, right? You love the things that people that you love, love, right? The two guys on staff here, Tim, our worship minister, and Zachy, one of our elders who also is in charge of our groups ministry here at the church. These two guys love baseball. They love to talk about it. They love to play it or pretend like they play it. They love to watch YouTube videos about it. They love to talk to me about it. All the, you know what I think about baseball? Don't care, don't care. I'm terrible at it, just like I'm terrible at all sports, and so I don't care about them. And yet, over the years of knowing these guys, I have grown in my interest and affection for baseball. Not because I genuinely find it interesting in and of itself, but because these men that I love, love it. And so I have grown in affection and interest. It's like your kids, they get involved in all manner of stuff that you couldn't care less about before. Your kid's into soccer, now you're into soccer. Your kid's in gymnastics. Were you watching gymnastics before that? Probably not. You begin to love the things that the people you love, love. If you love someone, you learn to love what they love. So God loves people, right? That's what he does. He loves the people that he's created. He loves humans, and so we should love what he loves. We should love humans as well. We should have a special love for our brothers and sisters. Because God has a special electing love for those that he's called to himself. That's the first reason. Reason number two, in light of this definition, right, to to do what's best for someone, even if it costs you, well, that would mean then for us to love God, somehow we must do what's best for God, even if it costs us. How is that possible? How can we do anything for God? He doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need a sacrifice from us. The final sacrifice has already been made in Christ and God is completely perfect in and of himself. He needs nothing from us. Well, then that must mean to love God must look different than it looks for us to love each other. How does it look for us to love God? We have to turn that love for God toward the imperfect creatures that he has created, that he loves. So for us to love God must mean then that we love others. That's reason number two. Reason number three, that we become liars, according to John, if we say we love God but don't love our brother, is this idea of God's image, the Imago Dei, right? God has created every human that's ever lived in his image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And like John is about to say in the second half of this verse that we haven't gotten to yet, but we will in a minute, We cannot see God, but we can see his image. Let me explain it like this. Imagine there is a uh, a soldier in World War II fighting for the Allies. He's in Europe. He's been over there like 18 months, two years. He hasn't seen his wife or his kids in that whole time, and he's not going to see them anytime soon because there's much more fighting, much more work to do. But he has this little photograph of them. How is he going to treat that photograph? How is he going to treat that image of his wife and kids? He's going to love it. He's gonna cherish it, he's gonna protect it. He might keep it close to his heart, tucked inside his coat. If he's running from some dangerous thing and realizes he's dropped it, he may go back toward danger just to get this photograph. Is that photograph actually his family? No. It's not the thing that he actually loves, but he loves this image because it reminds him of what it represents, it reminds him of his family. What would we think of him if he just threw that thing in the mud, was like whatever, it's just a picture? We would think, man, Maybe he doesn't love them. Now, similarly, we are to love this image of God that he has created, that he has put into others. God has put his image into your brothers and sisters. And if our love for God is genuine, then we will love this image that he has put in front of us. Now, this analogy, of course, breaks down, as all analogies do, right? We are not the image of God in the same way a picture is an image of a person. We're not some physical representation of God. God isn't a physical being. He's a spirit. But you get the analogy. You get the idea. We love the image of God that we see in others because we love God. The fourth and final reason that we are going to look at for why loving others is kind of this prerequisite for loving God, John gives us right here in the second half of the verse. Second half of verse 20. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is what we call an fortiori argument. We've had these several times as we've gone through 1 John. It's this argument of to the stronger. It's the idea if you can do this harder thing, then you can do the easier version of that thing, right? If you can lift 20 pounds, well, then you can lift 5 pounds. If you can run 2 miles, then you can run 1 mile. If you could eat 2 bottle rocket tacos at Torchy's, then you can eat one of those. If you can watch two movies with Jar Jar Binks in them, you can watch one. Right? And then the inverse of that is true as well. If you cannot lift five pounds, you cannot lift 20 pounds. If you cannot run one mile, you cannot run two miles. If you can do the easier thing, then you can, if you can't do the easier thing, then you can't do the harder thing. Jesus uses this kind of argument several times in the Scriptures. One time in Matthew 6, where he's, doing, he's uh, kind of giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about anxiety, trusting God for his provision. He talks about the birds and how they don't sow or reap, but yet God provides for them. And they're of such lesser value. If God's going to take good care of this lesser value thing, how much more is he going to take care of this greater value thing? And in Mark 2, where Jesus is in this house, surrounded by people listening to him teach, it says that they're so packed in, nobody can get in through the doors. And there's these guys that want to bring their friend to Jesus who's paralyzed. So they tear a hole in the roof. They drop him down, hoping that Jesus will heal him. And Jesus' first thing is, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't heal his body. He heals his soul. And the Pharisees are like, oh. And Jesus, he understands what they're thinking. and he says, He basically says, what's harder? What's harder, to heal a body or heal a soul? Well, the soul, of course. And to demonstrate that I have the power to do both, I will do both and he tells the man, get up and walk. So this a fortiori argument, this to the stronger argument we see all over the place in the scriptures. You cannot love God without loving your brother. The scripture says you're a liar if you say you love God and you hate your brother. So let's pause for just a minute and try to remember why in the world is John writing this letter in the first place, right? Sometimes we get bogged down in the details and we forget the the bigger purpose of the letter. He's writing for a couple of reasons. There is a contingent within the church that has separated away. They've embraced false teaching. They've become false teachers. They have false doctrine that they're holding to. And John calls them antichrists, right? That's the way he describes them in chapter 2. Earlier in chapter 4, he describes them this way. And John's trying to do two things. He's trying to encourage those who've remained in the faith. And he's trying to rebuke the false teaching of these antichrists. So he's both being pastoral and polemic, polemic being to argue against something. So we've established that as he's done this and as he's gone through this letter, he's kind of established three tests of genuine faith, three tests that we can look at and say, is the faith that's being claimed here genuine for the purposes of arguing against what these false teachers, what these antichrists are holding to? He has this theological test, which is just, do you believe what the scriptures teach? Do you believe the truth about Jesus? He has a moral test. Do you obey the commands of God? And he has this relational test that we're looking at here today. Do you love your brothers? And with each of these tests, John, John has resorted to this extremely strong language of calling people liars if they hold to these things but don't actually do these things. And I want to just take a quick minute and look at these places where he's done this. So in First John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. This is referencing to that theological test. If you don't believe the truth of what God has said, that we are all sinners, if you dismiss this theological truth, then you're saying God is a liar. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is talking about that moral test. If you try to say that you love God, but you do not obey him, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. And then our verse this morning. 1 John 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This is talking about that relational test. Do you love one another? Do you love your brothers? So John wants his audience to see and understand that these things aren't just good ideas. They are inextricably linked to genuine faith, right? John is saying to you and I, Do you hold to the truth of Christ? If you don't, but you claim to know and love God, you're a liar. He's saying to you and to me, he's saying, do you obey the commands of Scripture? If you don't, but you say that you know God, you're a liar. He's saying, do you genuinely love others? If you don't, and you say you love God, you're a liar. And that's strong. That's stingy. That's a little ouchy, right? But we hear that, and we are likely to do one of two things with that. When we see that and hear that, and Ooh, I don't like you that, right? We're going to do one of two things. We're going to compare ourselves to others and find ourselves satisfied, right? I'm going to look at what other people do and compare that to what I do, and I am nailing it. A community group got together, somebody needed help with their bills, and we all put in money. I put it in 500 bucks. I guarantee you nobody else did that. I'm crushing it. I went and visited like three people in the hospital from the church last week. I guarantee you nobody else did that many. I am nailing it, right? Or you'll do the same thing, but you'll feel condemned. You'll compare yourself to others and say, I'm the worst. I know one of these guys gave 500 bucks to help that guy. I didn't give anything. I couldn't afford, I'm the worst. I'm not discipling anyone. I'm not visiting anybody in the hospital. I'm not being faithful. I'm the worst. But both of those things... Are a complete rejection and repudiation of the gospel. Neither of those two positions genuinely embrace the truth. The measuring stick for success in these areas, the the, the how to know if you're passing these tests, is not in comparing yourself to others. It's not in looking at how you've done and what you've done and what you've not done. It's answering this question Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Zach talked about this a couple weeks ago. He took this note card he held it up and he'd written the word you on it, right? This represents you. And he took his Bible and he opened it up and he said, this is you, this Bible represents Christ. And he puts the note card in the Bible and closes it. He says, now you are in Christ. Anywhere this Bible goes, you go. If this Bible's in my car, you're in my car. If this Bible's on my desk, you're on my desk. Are you in Christ? Because if you are, then his righteousness counts for you. Christ passes these tests easily, perfectly, right? Christ holds to truth. Christ believes right doctrine. He indeed is the truth, right? Christ passes that moral test. He obeys God's law perfectly. He is tempted just in every way that you and I are, and yet without sin. He has fulfilled the law perfectly. Christ passes that relational test. He's loved his brothers more perfectly than anyone will ever love anyone else. He loved you and I to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we hear this strong language, when we hear about anyone who fails these tests but claims God is a liar, we should see and understand this is not a place for condemnation and this is not a place for boasting in ourselves and our our deeds. That idea of being a liar, that would be you, that would be me, if not for Christ. If you are in Christ, his righteousness counts for you. Apart from Christ, we can't measure up. We can't pass these tests. There's no amount of good deeds you can do that will measure up. There is one who has measured up. There is one who has been faithful. There is one who has genuinely passed these tests because the expectation is not believing the truth, kind of, most of the time. The test is not, do you obey God's laws pretty good? The test is not, do you love your brothers as much as you can? The test is, do you believe these things perfectly? The test is, do you obey God perfectly? The test is, do you love your brother perfectly? And the answer for every one of us is no, we do not. But there is one who has. And if you are in him, then you have nothing to fear. There's no need for condemnation. There's no no room for boasting in yourself. Only boasting in him. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John is now reinforcing this notion of loving God and loving others, kind of being inextricably connected and linked to this genuine faith. And it it is not just this, this linking, it's not just this understanding, but rather it's an explicit command of Christ. John is referring back to the gospel of John, written by the same guy. And he's looking at at, uh, chapter 13. That's what he's referencing here. This is Jesus at the Last Supper where he says to his disciples, he says in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says clearly and explicitly that the way people will know if you belong to Christ is by the way you love others. And so back here in verse 21 of 1 John in chapter 4, he's using this relational test because Jesus uses it in the Gospel of John. Jesus says clearly that people are going to know whether you and I belong to him by the way we love one another. Jesus makes this even more clear in Matthew 25. We're not going to put this on the screen, but let me just summarize it quickly. Right? Jesus has been asked by his disciples, Hey, Jesus, tell me about the end time stuff. How's that going to go? How's the judgment going to be? And he begins to explain things to them. And then he tells them about the sheep and the goats. And he says, The sheep are those who have loved and trusted me. And I will say to them, Welcome, you are blessed. You took care of me. You loved me. You clothed me. You fed me. And they say, What? When did we do that? He said, Every time you've done this for the least of these, you've done it for me. And he turns to the goats and says, Depart from me, you are wicked, you have not been faithful, you have not loved me, you have not clothed me, you have not fed me, you have not taken me. And they go, "What? when when, when do we not do that? He says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. And Jesus is saying, our relationship with one another is going to be this measuring stick by which we determine whether or not we truly love God. Do I love others is how I know if I'm loving God. So here's Jesus speaking of his own coming, talking about the judgment day. And he's saying that we're going to be judged on account of how we have or have not loved our brothers. And this is the point John's making. And he's not making it to create fear or anxiety in the hearts of his readers. He's wanting to encourage us because he's pointing out this falsehood not to frighten you, but so that we can know what's genuine and what's counterfeit. Imagine if we bring someone from a faraway place who does not understand our ways, who doesn't understand our money system, who doesn't understand our government, who doesn't understand anything we do. They're from Oklahoma. I'm kidding, they're from some far away place, they've never seen our money, and we say to them, we want you to tell us which money, which bills that we have here are counterfeit, which ones are genuine, and they're going to say, I don't know, I don't know how to tell, and they say, we say, okay, well, here's the plates that we used to print the bills, here is a brand new crisp bill that came from the Mint, we tell you this is genuine, now study these things. Now, once they've studied it and they learn the markers of a genuine and a counterfeit bill, we can hand them any other bill and they can say, oh yeah, 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 this one's real, that one's fake. Okay, we could give them a brand new, crisp, really nice looking counterfeit bill and they'll know the markers and say, no, that's not genuine. We could give them a really beat up and torn and dirty and messed up genuine bill and they'll say, oh, that's, that's a real one. The idea here is that John is wanting to help his readers know That those who have left, those who have departed from you, those who have adopted this false teaching, these antichrists, you don't need to wonder or worry if you're holding it right or they're holding it right. Do they love their brothers? No. Do they hold to the truth of Christ? No. Do they obey the commands of God? No. Their faith isn't genuine. Yours is. That's what he's wanting to tell them. Once they learn what's genuine, then they can understand what is counterfeit and be encouraged. Then all of this is this polemic against these antichrists, right? He's trying to say that they don't believe the truth, that they don't obey, they don't love others. And the same is true for us, so that we might know. But that's not the best takeaway for us. We're not, we're not wrestling with that same issue. We're wrestling with different issues. We're wrestling with whether or not I'm a believer. We're wrestling with, do I truly love God? Do I really love others? And so what's our takeaway from today? What's our, what should we learn from our text Here's what it is. If you want to pass these three tests that John has laid out, and in particular today, if you want to learn to love others, here's how you do it. You ready? Rest in the love of Christ. That's it. Don't go home and make a list of how to be better. Don't go home and try to figure out how you're going to love others better. Instead, rest in the knowledge of the truth that you are loved You have been chosen. You have been adopted. Christ counts for you. You are in Christ. You are that note card. His righteousness counts for you. That will grow your love for him. Let me put it like this. How do I actually love my wife, Carol, better? Do I go home and make a list of all the things I want to do to show her how much I love her? Maybe. Is that really the best way to love her better? No. The best way to love her better is spend time with her. Hang out with her. Hear her story. Talk to her. Hang out with other people who love her. This will naturally grow my affection for my wife. Will that then result in me doing things that demonstrate that love? Surely. But to actually grow the love, I need to spend time with her. And that's the same idea with us and our relationship with God. We've seen that the, the outworking of love for God is this love for others. So how do we learn to love others better? Learn to love God better. Spend time with him. Read his word. Talk to him. Pray. We learn more about him. We hang out with others who love him, like we're doing this morning. We focus on, we rest in the truth of what he has done for us. His love for us is what causes love from from us to him, which then overflows into a love for others. You don't have to perform to earn God's love, he gives it freely. Don't go home and try to figure out how you're going to muster up the courage to do these better things so that you can show that you love God. Instead, rest in the knowledge that He loves you. And that will build a great love for Him in your heart that will overflow into a love for others that's genuine. If you are in Christ, if you're that note card, if you're in that Bible, If you belong to Christ, if you are in him, then you have been fully and freely and forever forgiven of your sin and loved and welcomed in and adopted. You don't have to earn it. Truly resting in this knowledge is what's going to result in a heart that truly loves God and then overflows into a love for others. Let's pray as those who are serving communion come forward. Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning and we confess that we need you, that apart from you, we can do no good thing, that your love for us is great, that our ability to love you rightly is weak, that apart from the work of your spirit, apart from a heart that's transformed, that we have great difficulty in being faithful. In fact, we are incapable, unable to be faithful apart from you. And so we pray that you'll help us this morning. Help us to see and realize and believe and hold fast to the truth of your word, which tells us that you are a good God, that you give good gifts to your children, that you can be trusted, and that those of us who are in Christ, if our hope is in him, if we believe these truths, that all the work has been accomplished for us already. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done So Lord, protect us, from our prideful hearts that would say, by comparison, I'm doing great. Or by comparison, I'm doing terribly. But instead, let us rejoice in the knowledge that in Christ, we are righteous. In Christ, we are counted as perfect. In Christ, we have passed these tests with flying colors because Jesus has accomplished it all for us. Be near to us. We love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.